welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm Zoe. And I'm Kelsey. So Kelsey, I had kind of a, a funny event in my life, which was that I finished my fourth ever contemporary novel. Ooh, good for you. <laughs> yes. I know, right? And I really liked it. Ooh, even better. <laughs> I know. So it's funny also, in my opinion, because... I read the blurb on the back of the book, and I really did not want to read this book. Like, it was everything I hate. <laughs> oh, I think you read me the blurb, and you're like, Kelsey, this blurb is terrible. Like, I hate this blurb. And I was like, oh, I hated yeah. it. So Ooh. I hated it so much. But I had the lovely pleasure of getting to speak with the author. So I really, really, really wanted to read a little bit of her work before I spoke with her. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that after I talk about the book. And so I bought the book and I started reading it. And I was just like hooked by page 10. <laughs> awesome. So, I really felt like the whoever wrote the blurb, I'm assuming, was probably not the author because the blurb was like, I can't even remember. It just was the kind oh, of thing it was, that it was cheese tastic, is what it was. It was like yes, it over was. the it top was like, cheese tastic. You know, the hero is a professional sports player, <laughs> and the wife has never ever had the big O. Oh God! Or, the wife has always been faking the big O. What will they do? <laughs> and it was just like, like everything was like dripping in the in the synopsis, but. The book was fabulous. And of course, this book is the Bromance Book Club. And I was uh, just like, ah. And it's they they read a Regency romance novel, these these guys um in the book in the book club, and they call them manuals to like help them understand how women <laughs> see things. Uh-huh. Uh it's so cute. And and like everything about the premise was what I really thought I would hate. And yet the writing was fabulous and oh, the pacing that. was perfect. Excellent. And so it's just I just always like is another reminder of like there's so much out there to read which is awesome and also just like it's so great to be surprised and find something good and I also think like when something is good it's just kind of undeniable Mm -hmm. you know so anyhow I just I really really enjoyed it so I just wanted to share that also that I you know read the blurb was like oh no and (laughs) then read a book and was like oh fabulous so well it's always it's a pleasant surprise when that happens. It really is. It's so nice when it's when it's when it sweeps you off your feet, shall we say? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I did. I got to talk with Lissa K. Adams and another uh, contemporary romance novelist called uh, named. Kristen Rockaway, because I have been lucky to partner with my local librarian, Jessica Buck, who is a librarian at the Escondido Library, and they've been doing some virtual events with romance authors. So I think we've mentioned that before, but they've gotten started. We've done two now. And uh, by the time this comes out, we'll have done three. So um, I highly recommend you guys check it out. We'll have a link to them in the show notes. We've had historical romance authors. We've had contemporary authors. And then the this week's uh, group will be debut authors. So Ooh. these two, yeah, these two ladies who have just published their first books. So that's really exciting. And we're going to have some other uh, exciting groups of authors. So I really recommend you guys tune in. And if you don't get a chance to tune in, we may be playing those in our feed later this year. Aha. Uh-huh. There you go. So how about we get on to the book that we're talking about today? 
Let's. So today we're going to be talking about When He Was Wicked by Julia Quinn. And this is book six. Six. I just have to do my ABCs real quick. (laughs) This is book six of the Bridgerton series. So we are like almost there, guys. We're almost there. Oh my gosh. She... No, she didn't do it in alphabetical order. I was like, wait no, a minute. She, did. I, she started with Daphne, she did, and Daphne. then from there went alphabetical. Yes. Which I was okay. actually thinking about reading this book, and I was like, I wonder why Daphne's book had to be first, because all the other ones are in alphabetical order. Yes. So, I don't know. Very interesting. So, I think you have an author fact to share with us, Kelsey? Um, it's an author fact, but more an author note. So, in this book, there are some medical... Me- like there's some medical things that are happening and Julia Quinn kind of leaves them a bit of a mystery. So at the end of the book, she has an author's note that really gives you a lot of good information on what she kind of inflicted her characters with, shall we say. And so like, yes, this is a spoiler, guys, but it's going to spoil real fast for you anyway. So you're just going to get some facts in the heads up. So there you go. So the author's note says, so John Sterling, the Earl of Kilmartin, who is Francesca's first husband, died from a ruptured cerebral aneurysm. Since it is unlikely that his family would do an autopsy, they would only know he took a nap for a headache and never woke up. And Michael Sterling, who is John's cousin and the second Earl of Kilmartin. In this book. In this book, anyway. (laughs) Um, Yes. He was in India for a number of years, and he was inflicted with malaria. And so Julia Quinn writes, while there are different types of malaria, Michael suffers from Vivex malaria, which, while awful, is usually not fatal. He'll just suffer from fevers on an intermittent basis, and they might eventually subside and never return. And also, this is, I thought, fun for facts, was um, part of the proceeds of When He Was Wicked will go towards malaria drug development research, which is a huge problem in parts of the world. Very cool. I love seeing that, too. And we also have a history fact. And so our history fact this week is about the gin and tonic, which is a personal favorite of mine. <laughs> Me too. It's a new favorite of mine, and now it's like my go-to every time. Oh, I there's nothing. There's not a cocktail. I love a good gin drink. But anyhow, <laughs> but I love a gin and tonic. A little bit of extra lime in there. Mm, I'm so happy. So, <laughs> so the gin and tonic cocktail was introduced by the army of the British East India Company in India. In India and other tropical regions, malaria was a persistent problem. And in the 1700s, Scottish doctor George Cleghorn studied how quinine, a traditional cure for malaria, could be used to prevent the disease. The quinine was drunk in tonic water. However, the bitter taste was unpleasant. British officers in India in the early 19th century took to adding a mixture of water, sugar, lime, and gin to quinine in order to make the drink more palatable. Thus, the gin and tonic was born. Soldiers in India were already given a gin ration, and the sweet concoction made sense. Since it is no longer used as an anti-malarial, tonic water today contains much less quinine, is usually sweetened, and is consequently much less bitter. Mm-hmm. So cool. And I just remember in college learning that ton- like learning the difference between tonic water and seltzer water, oh, like club uh-huh. soda. Yeah. Because like you just think you're drinking no calories, but tonic water is full of calories. Oh, tonic water has the <laughs> calories. 
series. Don't you worry. That's why it's so good. (laughs) All right. So let's move on to our main tropes today. Tropes slash, I don't know, subgenres, shall we say. (laughs) So we have friends to lovers. We have a widow and a rake. We have unrequited love. Mm. Oh, we do. Yes. (laughs) And then, you know, the typical guilt over happiness. Yes, which is pretty much like our driving problem through this whole thing. (laughs) It it is a bit of a problem. Yes. So our main characters today are Francesca Bridgerton Sterling, Countess of Kilmartin, and Michael Sterling, Earl of Kilmartin. Not at first. Not at first. soon. (laughs) We'll get to that in just about two seconds flat, guys. So shall we get into it? Let's. So Michael Sterling is in love with Francesca Bridgerton. It was an instant love and most unfortunately happened three days before she married his cousin and subsequently his best friend, John Sterling, the Earl of Kilmartin. However, Michael loves his cousin, and so he keeps his love for Francesca deep down inside. And it is now almost two years after that wedding and his subsequent falling in love with Francesca. And Michael, John, and Francesca are basically the three amigos. They're all so chummy that often Francesca will ask Michael to tell her something wicked, even in front of her Mm. husband, as she knows he's a rake and delights in all of his stories. Yes. So one night, while all three are enjoying each other's company, Francesca says that she would like to go for a walk. Michael agrees to accompany her, but John says he has a headache and he's going to take a nap because he has a meeting later that night with the prime minister. So he wants to be rested. Now, Michael, while deeply in love with Francesca, as mentioned, has never given any indication of his feelings. And of course, this walk is no different. He knows that John and Francesca love each other, and he is not going to get in the way of his best friend's happiness. But he is starting to feel the strain of having such a close relationship with Francesca that cannot evolve the way that he would like. Upon their return from the walk, John's valet tells Francesca that there is no response from the Earl at the door, and he's been knocking a few times, but he just can't, he's just not waking up. Francesca is like, oh, well, he really needs to wake up because this meeting is so important. So she goes up to wake John. And suddenly, Michael hears Francesca scream. And so Michael runs upstairs. Quote, Francesca, he grabs, Franny, Franny, what is... She was sitting next to the bed, clutching John's forearm, which was dangling over the side. Wake him up, Michael, she cried. Wake him up. Do it for me. Wake him up. But Michael cannot wake John because he is dead. And the family is devastated at the loss, and suddenly Michael is thrust into the role of Earl. That is, unless Francesca is pregnant, and then he is informed, he'll need to have someone present at the birth so there is no baby swapping. Michael, who is grieving John heavily, is disgusted by the whole thought of this and wants nothing to do with it. Quote, Already he'd heard that men in the clubs were calling him the luckiest man in Britain. Overnight, he'd gone from the fringe of aristocracy to its very epicenter. No one seemed to understand that Michael had never wanted this. Never. He didn't want an earldom. He wanted his cousin back. And no one seemed to understand that. So this new earldom is actually put on pause because it turns out Francesca is pregnant. And so now the wait begins to see if she will birth the future Earl or just a daughter. 
And with John's death, Michael's strong feelings for Francesca, which have already been hard to contain, are fraying. Francesca is leaning on Michael in her grief, and now that Michael is almost officially the Earl, he feels very strongly that he is already erasing John, and if he were to act on his feelings for Francesca, that would be just another nail in the coffin. Quote, his heart still ached with the pain of loving her, except now it was all wrapped in an extra layer of guilt, as if he hadn't had enough of that while John was alive. She was in pain, and she was grieving, and he ought to be comforting her, not lusting after her. Good God, John wasn't even cold in his grave. What kind of a monster would lust after his wife? He was already stepping into John's shoes in so many ways. He could not complete the betrayal by taking his place with Francesca as well. Then, to top off the tra already tragic circumstances, Francesca suffers a miscarriage, which makes Michael officially the Earl without question. Michael, upon learning of Francesca's miscarriage, is obviously devastated for her. But he also hears that she's asking for him from her sickbed, and he just he can't make himself go to her. He keeps saying he'll go tomorrow, go tomorrow. Until eventually, Francesca just comes to him, because she's trying to find solace with someone who understands and shares her grief. However, Michael's grief and his guilt are at war with one another. Quote, and when Francesca had turned to him with those bottomless blue eyes and said, the baby was to have been yours in a way too, she'd shattered him to his very soul. She didn't know. She had no idea. And as long as she remained in the dark about his feelings for her, as long as she couldn't understand why he had no choice but to hate himself for every step he took into John's shoes, he couldn't be near her. Because she was going to keep saying things like that, and he simply didn't know how much he could take. So Michael runs. He runs all the way to India for four years. And here we are, four years later. Francesca has been running Kilmartin in Michael's absence, and she loves it. She's also doing a pretty damn stellar job. <laughs> and she loves Kilmartin. She loves her life there. But something's missing from her life. And it's not just the fact that her husband is gone. Francesca really wants a baby. And to get a baby, Francesca knows she'll need to find a husband, which means attending the season full force. She's going to need a whole new wardrobe, as she's been wearing half mourning for years. She knows that what she had with John was special and will likely only find attraction for her next husband. However, she wants a baby more than she needs to love her husband. So it's off to London a bit early to, in order to outfit herself and make it be known that the Countess of Kilmartin is on the market. Since Francesca forgot to tell the staff in London about her early arrival, the house is not quite prepared for her, and her room is so cold. However, she knows there should be wood in the library, and she'll be able to snuggle up next to the fire to be warm. However, when she goes down to the library, she finds that it is not empty. It turns out that Michael had thought it was time to return to England. And after getting over her shock, Francesca goes on the offensive, quote, couldn't you have written? To you, he asked, quirking a brow. It was, and was meant to be, a direct hit. She hadn't penned him a single letter during his travels. He had sent her three letters, but once it became apparent that she didn't plan to answer, he'd conducted the rest of his correspondence through his mother. So the two of them take this library time to kind of assess each other. They no longer have that ease of friendship 
that they had before John's death. And they're noting that there's been a number of changes in each other. Quote, he'd changed, she realized. Oh, there were the obvious differences, the one everyone would notice. He was tan, quite scandalously so. And his hair, always midnight black, now sported a few odd strands of silver. But there was more. He held his mouth differently. More tightly, if that made any sense. And his smooth, lanky grace seemed to have gone missing. He'd always seemed so at ease, so comfortable in his skin. But now he was taut. Strained. And on Michael's end, he'd been lying when he'd said she hadn't changed. There was something different about her, something entirely unexpected, something that shook him down to his very soul. It was a sense about her. All in his mind, really, but no less devastating. There was an air of availability, a horrible, torturous knowledge that John was gone, really, truly gone, and the only thing stopping Michael from reaching out and touching her was his own conscience. Amid sizing each other up, they do discuss Michael's sudden departure to India and why Francesca did not write him in all the time he was gone. Quote, I was rather angry with you for leaving. He sucked in his breath. Trust Francesca to choose stark honesty over, over a scathing retort. I'm sorry, he said, and he meant it, even though he wouldn't have changed any of his actions. He'd needed to leave. He'd had to leave. Maybe it meant he was a coward. Maybe it meant he'd been less of a man. But he hadn't been ready to be the Earl. And the two leave the encounter with both of them going to bed separately. The next day, Francesca goes to her mother's house in order to maintain propriety until Michael and John's mother arrive in town for the season. Michael then pays a call to number five and is invited that night to the Bridgerton's family dinner. And while he's there, he and Francesca go for a walk in Hyde Park to clear the air further. And that is also when he learns Francesca's true purpose in town. And that she wants a baby. Quote, a lot of women want children. Right, he said, coughing on the word. Of course, but don't you think you might want a husband first? Of course, she speared him with an aggravated glare. Why do you think I came down to London early? He looked at her blankly. I'm shopping for a husband, she said, speaking to him as if he were a halfwit. How mercenarily put, he murmured. She pursed her lips. It's what it is, and you had probably best get used to it for your own sake. It's precisely how the ladies will soon be talking about you. While chatting about the mercenary nature of marriage in the ton, Francesca has a revelation about her longtime friend, quote, but suddenly, but now, she'd looked at him and she'd seen something entirely new. She'd seen a man and it scared the very devil out of her. Uh-oh, awareness is happening. <laughs> Michael heads home after his walk with Francesca and she goes shopping with her mother. Which leads to her and her mother having the biggest heart-to-heart. -heart. After all, her mother is also a widow who lost her husband young and very suddenly. She may be able to help Francesca with her mixed feelings towards finding another husband. Quote, I'm not going to find someone like John. I've accepted that. And it feels so wrong to marry with less. You won't find someone like John. That is true, Violet said. But you might find a man who will suit you equally well, just in a different way. At least the talk helps a bit, as, quote, None of it addressed the problem that lay most deeply within her heart. What would happen if she actually did meet someone who made her feel the way she'd felt with John? She couldn't imagine that she would. Truly, it seemed wildly improbable. But what if she did? How could she live with herself then? 
That night at number five, everybody is wondering why Michael has not shown up for dinner. Francesca is actually a bit worried because Michael may be a rake, but he's always been punctual to a fault. Leaving her family behind with a promise to return, she heads over to Kilmartin House and finds Michael sick in bed with a quote-unquote head cold. Francesca is not buying it. Quote, this is not a head cold, she said sharply. His lips stretch into a hideous approximation of a smile. A really bad head cold? Michael Stewart Sterling. Good God, you sound like my mother. It turns out that this is a malaria fever episode, and Michael explains to Francesca that he will suffer one of these every other day for the next little bit of time, and then it will fade and he'll be right as rain until the next one appears. He also begs her not to tell anyone because they won't understand, and he'll get a weird reputation as some sort of diseased man from India. (laughs) While she believes his explanation, Francesca takes the time to care for him and ends up falling asleep. Whoops. The next morning, Michael wakes up to find Francesca in the chair next to his bed. Quote, He supposed it had been too much to hope that he could hide his illness from her. She was far too perceptive, and certainly far too nosy. And even though he would have preferred she didn't worry over him, the truth was, he had been comforted by her presence the night before. She wakes up, and then after seeing to Michael, leaves him to return to number five. And Francesca continues this back and forth until Michael and John's mother arrive, and then at that point, she moves back in. While Michael may have wanted to, he does not have the luxury of keeping his illness from his mother and aunt. So they take over fussing over him, allowing Francesca time to do what she arrived in London to do, which is find a husband. And she is wildly successful. After one ball, there are dozens of flowers delivered to the house, and Michael is a bit put out by all the male attention she is receiving. He starts being short with her, and Francesca's a bit confused. Things are then compounded further after Michael heads over to his club, trying to escape all the attention on Francesca, and is waylaid by men wanting to know what her dowry situation is like. Mm. And then after getting rid of the pestering lords about the club, Colin Bridgerton approaches. Quote, Michael had long suspected there was quite a bit of substance under Colin's ever jovial surface, and perhaps it was because they were alike in so many ways, but Michael had always feared that if anyone were to sense his true feelings for Francesca, it would be this brother. And after saying he heard Michael was looking for a wife, Colin tells him he should just marry Francesca. And Michael is taken aback because really how could Colin know? He had worked so hard to keep his feelings a secret. But the question of, is this possible, starts to seriously seep into Michael's brain. Technically, he can marry her. There is no law against it. In fact, maybe he really can marry her after all. But would that hurt the memory of John? Francesca, on the other hand, is making it known she's looking for a husband. Don't think nobody noticed she dressed in blue for the first time in four years. At Violet Bridgerton's birthday party, things do not go well. Michael has not so subtly been avoiding Francesca, but at this party, he cannot take his eyes from her. After dancing with a suitor, Michael notices that Francesca has disappeared from the ballroom. Noticing an open door to the terrace, Michael ventures out and overhears her with the suitor. And then he overhears her protesting the attention of the man in question. So he rushes in, right as Francesca was about to take care of the situation herself, and punches the man, taking him down. Quote, 
Francesca realized she was holding her breath. He was terrifying, but he was also magnificent. And it shook her to her very core to realize she'd never seen him thus, never dreamed he could be like this. The man who got the beat leaves the party after promising also to leave London. And Francesca thinks it's best she leaves as well, but she cannot help pondering the events for the rest of her night. When Michael returns home, he is ambushed by Francesca. He tries to blow her off, but she follows him into his room. Quote, Why are you so angry with me? She repeated. And she realized that she hadn't even realized that she felt this way until the words had left her lips. But something wasn't right between them, and she had to know why. Francesca pushes him and pushes him until finally the dam bursts, and Michael cannot keep himself contained anymore. And a kiss is inevitable. It was the sort of kiss that seduced with subtlety, sent tingles through her body, and left her desperate for more. They part and have a minute of just looking at each other, and then reality comes into play. Quote, I can't do this, she whispered. He said nothing. The words came faster, but not in great numbers. I can't. I can't. I can't. I... I... Then go, he bit off. Now. She ran. She ran to her bedroom, and then the next day she ran to her mother, and then the day after that she ran all the way to Scotland. <sighs> and while Francesca is running, Michael is trying to drown himself in women. Obviously that's his problem, he should just fuck someone else and he'll get over it, right? Right? That works. Ah! <laughs> uh <laughs> yeah, except Michael can't actually do it. He's spoiled for other women now. With just that one kiss, he knows what he's been missing for his whole life. So taking himself away from the brothel where he's had zero success, he heads to his club to drown himself there in a different way. Where, of course, who finds him? Colin Bridgerton, just the man he did not want to see. Colin, of course, wants to talk about Francesca, while also telling Michael about his impending nuptials to Penelope Featherington. So now we've got the timeline uh, really clear here, although Violet Bridgerton's birthday party helped with that. But mm -hmm. now we know also why we haven't heard from Francesca in all these books. She's been hiding in Scotland. Yes. <laughs> he also tells Michael something important, quote, there's no reason you can't marry her. None at all, except, of course, he added, almost as an afterthought, the reasons you manufacture for yourself. Ooh, mm -hmm. burn. <laughs> so while Michael is churning all this over in his mind, Michael suggests to Colin maybe someone should tell Francesca about Colin's upcoming wedding, to which Colin replies, yes, someone should tell her. And thus... Michael heads on up to Scotland. And on his way there, he's made a decision. He is going to marry Francesca. And he wastes no time in telling her. Francesca comes back from a walk to find that Michael's at Kilmartin and is waiting for her in the drawing room. Once she is seated in the drawing room, he simply tells her he thinks they should marry. He'll happily give her all the children she wants and she can remain the Countess of Kilmartin. It's not romantic. It's very practical. He figured that practicality might work better on her than emotion and feelings. <laughs> and when that approach doesn't quite work, he sets about on a different approach. The seductive approach. 
It turns out, guys, that Francesca likes dirty talk. Uh, with all of the tell me something wicked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are we surprised? Yes. Because Michael's like, well, you did always like me to tell you something wicked. Shall I tell <gasps> you what I'm going to do to you? And she's like, no, don't. Oh. But do. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, do you want me to stop? He whispered again. And this time he did stop. He didn't remove his hands, but he didn't move them either just held still and allowed her a moment of quiet in which to make her answer. And he pulled his head back, just far enough so that she had to look at him. Or if not that, then at least he would be looking at her. She does not want him to stop, and it progresses so that she has her first orgasm in years. And this is how we have encounter number one. And Michael is blown away because he had no idea that it could be that good with someone. The next morning, though, Francesca is kicking herself. She is so mad that she turned against herself that way. She feels like it's a betrayal to her first marriage. Not that she had had sex with Michael, but that she had enjoyed it. Quote, And most of all, she hated him because he'd asked her permission. Because every step of the way, even as his fingers had teased her mercilessly, he had made sure she was willing. And now she could never claim that she'd been swept away, that she'd been powerless against the force of her own passion. Bastard, how dare he require consent? (laughs) So Francesca sets out for a long walk and gets stuck in the rain for two hours. And then, who finds her but Michael? just the person she was trying to avoid. He insists she return home with him, but she just keeps refusing. Finally, he gets her onto his horse, and then as they're walking home, the horse goes lame. However, conveniently, there is an abandoned groundskeeper cottage nearby. Hmm. How convenient. Francesca gets there first as Michael has to walk the lame horse along and then find a place to put the lame horse. Good job, Michael. Good horsemanship. Very good horsemanship. I know, right? And also for Francesca, she's like, well, obviously he's not faking that the horse was lame because if he was faking it, he wouldn't have spent all this extra time in the storm. Yeah. But now... What are two wet people to do in a very small cottage? (laughs) Cold, wet people. (laughs) Cold, wet people. Quote, will you let me kiss you? He whispered. She didn't move. He leaned toward her. I told you I wouldn't seduce you without your permission, he said, his voice husky, his words falling mere inches from her lips. Still, she didn't move. Will you kiss me, Francesca? He asked again. She swayed, and he knew she was his. In fact, they have a romping good time, and it turns out that Francesca likes to dictate the rules in bed. And eventually, they make it back to the house, and Michael agrees to give Francesca some space to think over the offer of marriage. Michael also does some thinking, and that thinking includes wondering what John would think over the whole thing. Now, he's definitely come to the realization that he wants to marry Francesca on his way up. But after being at Kilmartin again, and which is where he grew up, and then being with Francesca, he realizes something. Quote, and he realized that his cousin would have given his blessing. John's heart was that big. His love for Francesca and Michael, that true. He would have wanted Francesca to be loved and cherished the way that Michael loved and cherished her. 
and he would have wanted Michael to be happy. The one emotion Michael had never truly thought he could apply to himself. Happy. Imagine that. Francesca, on the other hand, is not enjoying this time to think. She would rather be doing other things. So she gets Michael to continue with those other things until three weeks later when she still has yet to make a decision about marriage. So they've been continuing their affair this whole time. Mm-hmm. I couldn't call it an encounter, guys. It's a, it's a, it's a 0.5 plus. Yes. <laughs> However, at the end of this three weeks, Michael's had enough. He cannot keep living in limbo and he has it out with Francesca. In fact, he ends up telling her to leave. If she cannot be with him, then she needs to go because he cannot watch her choose someone else. And Francesca just doesn't see what the big deal is. Like, why can't they just keep enjoying this? Why does he need to marry her? Why? He asked again, this time with increased volume as he turned around to face her. Why? It's because I love you, damn me to hell. Because I've always loved you. Because I loved you when you were with John. And I loved you when I was in India. And God only knows I don't deserve you, but I love you anyway. And Francesca then leaves him, and Michael is gutted. He just handed her the knife to kill him with. What was he even thinking? However, he does get a reprieve, because three hours later, Francesca is back, and she agrees to marry him. Quote, There will be no backing out, he says. No cold feet. No changed minds. No, she says. I promise. And then they confirm this decision in bed, but sadly there are no details, so we're still in the 2++. plus plus. Yes. A couple of days later, Francesca gets a letter from her mother detailing how Colin's wedding was moved up and how Eloise ran off and is marrying a man she's never met before. At her annoyed response to this letter, as her family is doing all sorts of things without her, Michael teases Francesca, and Francesca has a huge reality check because she realizes she's agreed to marry her best friend. Why had she not thought of that before? Surely their marriage will be good, because they've shared such a strong bond for such a long time. Suddenly, Michael says they should get married. She laughs that that's already the plan. But Michael has an objective, and with creeping fingers and teasing, Michael says they should get married right away. Francesca agrees. Yeah, sure. We'll get married right away. That's cool. Because she's really just wanting Michael's fingers to keep doing the magic that they're creating. However, Michael's like, excellent. Great. Got your promise. And he literally hightails her off to the chapel. (laughs) And so they get married. And she is once again Francesca Sterling, Countess of Kilbarton. Quote, I'm very glad I married you, she finished, her voice matching the uncharacteristically shy expression on her face. It was the right thing to do. He felt his toes clench slightly, gripping the carpet as he tamped down his disappointment. It was more than he'd ever thought to hear from her, yet so much less than he'd hoped. And then following that bittersweet proclamation, we have encounter number three. However, happiness is short-lived because Michael suddenly has a raging fever. And he insists it's too soon for his malaria to return, but Francesca is not convinced and she is terrified. If it is malaria, does this mean it'll be the end of the line for Michael? Quote, It wasn't right and it wasn't fair, damn it all, that she should have to lose two husbands when so many women got to hold on to one for an entire lifetime. And most of those women didn't even like their spouses, whereas she, who actually loved them both, 
Francesca's breath caught. She loved him? Michael? Oh. <laughs> oh my gosh. And while she's busy with that new revelation, we find out that it's just a run-of-the-mill fever. Thank God. It's not the malaria. Michael will recover. And Francesca is over the moon with, like, joy that he's not going to die. But she has something to do before she can tell Michael her feelings. She has to take a journey to John's grave. And while she's there, quote, And she knew, truly fully knew, that John could have imagined it. And more than that, he would have wanted it. He would have wanted her to marry Michael. He would have wanted her to marry any man with whom she'd fallen in love. But she rather thought he'd be almost tickled that it had happened with Michael. Despite the fact that he's so sick, Michael makes it out of bed to follow Francesca. He's worried that she feels guilty for marrying him, and he wants her happiness above anything else. However, when he finds her, he hears her tell John that she loves Michael, and then she sees him. Quote, I love you, he said hoarsely. But did you hear me, she persisted. She had to know, and if he hadn't heard her, she had to tell him. He nodded jerkily. I love you, she said. She wanted to go to him. She wanted to throw her arms around him, but somehow she was rooted to her spot. I love you, she said again. I love you. And then they live happily ever after, guys. Aww. And we do have a small epilogue. The epilogue is a letter from Janet, John's mother. It extends her surprise, but also her blessing. And the last line is a tearjerker. Quote, and I hope you will not think me foolish when I also extend my thanks. Thank you, Michael, for letting my son love her first. Oh. 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 I know. This one's a bittersweet one. I mean, it's like so... Okay, we have so much to talk yes, about. Yes, we so do. Sh- first, shall we adjourn to the parlor? We shall. Today, we want to talk about Blush Magazine, and Blush Magazine is not a subscription, but a totally free digital magazine that takes readers beyond the pages of their favorite books to meet their favorite authors. It's focused solely on the romance novel industry, interviewing authors, following trends, delving into tropes, and the many intricacies specific to the romance genre, and provides insightful, thought-provoking, and fun editorial content on a monthly basis. So head on over to bit.ly slash blush magazine to check out the latest issue. And of course, we will link to that in the show notes. And if you have a book recommendation for us, we'd love to hear from you. If you have an inclusive author you love, we want to hear about it so we can share it. Let us know through our email, romancepod at gmail.com. And we take all sorts of book recommendations. We'd love to hear from you guys. So if you've read something that's really stellar and you think we should review it on the podcast, we'd love to hear that too. Feel free to recommend that. And if you've got something that's a little bit special or inclusive, we love to also share those on here in the parlor so more people can learn about them. So again, our email is romancepod at gmail.com. And if you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at teaandstrumpets. Twitter at Tea and Strumpets, Facebook and Pinterest slash Tea and Strumpets, and you can find us on YouTube by typing in our name. 
Yes, and that's T as in Tom, N as in Nancy, Strumpets. And we've been talking a lot about our email list, but we really think you should all sign up for our email notifications, and you can do that through our website. And of course, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Our email subscribers get to know all the books we're reading the next month first. They get exclusive content from the authors that we interview and a little bit more also fun stuff. We try to keep it fun and fresh and you don't hear from us that often. So we totally recommend that you guys sign up for our email list because I make it and I like it and you should. (laughs) It's very cute, guys. So it does a really good job with it. I get them in my inbox and I'm like, look how cute this is. Oh, well, your word search was killer the other day. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, head on over to our website or click that link in the show notes to subscribe. And if you like what you're hearing, feel free to tell a friend. Positive feedback is how we get discovered by new people. It's one of the best ways that podcasts get found is hearing about it from your friends. So if you enjoy listening to us, we would so appreciate it if you tell people who you think would also enjoy. Hey, everybody. It's Kelly, host of Boobies and Newbies, part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Every episode, I invite a romance reading newbie to read and review their very first romance novel alongside me, a self-proclaimed romance novel addict. We're talking everything from bisexual pegging. We need more (laughs) pegging on TV. We need it in books. We need it in real life. We need to talk about it. To the deepest intricacies of relationships. It really is like we're fighting for us. Like we're, let's fight. We cover it all. Find and follow us on social media at Boobies Podcast and catch up on previous episodes on your favorite podcast streaming platform. All right. Let's talk about when he was wicked. Yes. So I did remember the plot of this book. I wasn't sure if that was this book. I've definitely read this similar plot line in a different book. Mm-hmm. But it was this book that I read it into. So I was like, ah, oh, I am remembering this. Yeah, I remembered much of it. I didn't remember how many times they ran apart from each other, which they both did. They both oh, yes. ran, they both which ran. I liked because it was like, they're both runners. <laughs> you got a runner. <laughs> um, but I had actually forgotten that this was the the dripping wet cottage because mm. for whatever reason, that scene is like instilled in my brain. I think that was what the first kind of rendition of the, oh, we have our clothes are wet and I have to take off our clothes uh, and, you know, we must warn yes, each other uh-huh. <laughs> that I had ever read. And that scene is like so hot and sexy. Like it's a, I mean, it's a really hot scene. It is. It really is. Um, like guys, when I said Francesca likes dictating it, oh, she's like, if we're going to do this, we're doing a my uh, way. <laughs> I also just read an arc of a book with a submissive duke and a uh, a, a dominant, uh, you know, woman. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Anyhow, the point being, though, that, um, yeah, I, I had forgotten that that was this book. And it's funny because that scene, for whatever, was probably pivotal in, like, imagining other books that I think I maybe want to create mm-hmm. one day or whatever. But it is just... It was weird that I was like, oh, that's 
that's that's here. That's this book. And I had taken that scene and kind of morphed it into so many different ideas in my head. Mm-hmm. So it's just crazy, the books and the impressions that they have on you. And then they just kind of meld into yes. the group, mm-hmm. into the pile. But yeah. like, oh, well, this book. And that's what I remember is so like, I definitely have read another book with a similar, you know, the guy meets her like, on the day of the wedding or the day before her wedding and realizes Mm -hmm. and like is an instantly in love with her and then you know but it's his best friend so he can't you know touch that yeah however i think the reason like i didn't remember that but i think in that that other book that i'm thinking of i think the guy like leaves them like he only sees them once in a while so his love is confirmed but it's not like he's a part of it versus i forgot that michael and like john and francesca was like the free three amigos like they did everything together everything and i i kind of love that although he's killing himself by doing that it's like such self-sacrifice like uh you know but yeah i really liked that Mm -hmm. actual dynamic that and then both how they they kind of come around in their own ways Mm -hmm. like you know, Michael is the is the reason that he can't marry Francesca, but also Francesca's never once given him a signal, mm-hmm. right? No. So it's not irrational of him to say, I can't go there because I, I really think it's I think it's very rational when he says he can't go there because he would just be taking every bit of John's memory oh, and just erasing it. I, I get that. I felt that in my heart. The closeness of the relationship. Like, when you're reading the passages about the weeks, like, right after John dies, like, I totally, like, understood Michael's grief. Because, like, Francesca and him are grieving, and he's like, but Michael's away, and, like, Francesca's leaning on me for support, but now the one barrier that was, like, keeping her from me is gone. But to take that step when I'm already taking over John's whole life, like, I can't can't do that. And I totally appreciate the fact that he did leave and he did walk away because he had to because otherwise like it would have just been it probably would have turned out the same way number one and then it just was like but he was he was grieving john and he had to grieve away from francesca and give himself that distance yeah and i think they both needed to i mean it's too bad that they couldn't have been there for each other but i think that i think that it just made sense that you know he was too close and yes he broke her heart by leaving and she didn't understand but i think that it it actually made them stronger mm-hmm. you know people just in on their own and and so it worked out. I think that the story was just generally well crafted. I liked it. I thought it had a good pace, mm-hmm. um, even though there's like lots of time. And um, it it is funny because we get so little Bridgerton in this. Yes, still. we do. But we do have that just like call an appearance. Oh my god, it's his best appearance maybe it is, ever because he just like he's, sweeps in. And he's just like, "Well, Mary." Fr-, he's like, "I hear you're on the hunt for a wife," and he's like, "Yeah." He's like. Phew. Mary Francesca. <laughs> well, also just that Michael like knows that Colin is the closest like in like everything to him, uh-huh. and he also knows that Colin is a lot more than uh, than just the aloof gentleman uh-huh. he seems. Yes, it's so good. I love that very much. And also, okay, let's talk about Violet in this book, uh-huh. right? That scene in the carriage when Francesca asks her what it was like to lose her husband and also why she never remarried. And Violet says, you know, none of my children have ever asked me that question before. (gasps) And it just broke my heart. Yes. It 
I mean, it's like really heartwarming and heart wrenching. I still haven't figured out the word for, for when you have that combo. Uh-huh. But oh my gosh. No, and I really think that this book, it highlights that relationship. And one thing that we like have mentioned, because Francesca is never a part, like she's very. She's only in, like, snippets of the other book, and she's very much a part. And Francesca is essentially the black sheep of the Bridgerton family. Like, mm-hmm. she likes to have her own space. She likes the fact that she, her husband has an estate in Scotland, and that's where she spends most of the year. Like, she likes that removal from her family. She has that whole, like, I was raised with too many siblings. There was too much chaos. I like quiet time. And... Yet she's the one that can then have the most connection with her mother. She's not removed from her entire family. She has that connection with her mother because Mm -hmm. she has all these shared life experiences in some way. And Violet, like, never pushes Francesca. She's just like, you do things your own way, but I'm your mother and I will always be there for you. And it's cool to see Violet be that other dimension of mom, right? Like mm-hmm. We often see her interactions with, with Daphne in the beginning, which is like her first brush with having a, a young woman as a daughter. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, you know, with um, with Hyacinth, they have this kind of bicker banter, mm-hmm. which is so great. And and even with Eloise, the same thing, but but with Francesca, it's different. And and I love seeing that in this book, how she she is you see that Violet is is the strong incredibly brilliant smart woman that that we know but mm-hmm. we didn't see in book one no. you and i both were like who is this woman why did we love her so we're much? like who's this matchmaking mama we liked violet bridgerton violet bridgerton's yeah. awesome <laughs> i feel like she's a caricature of the worst the worst uh traits of herself mm-hmm. in that first book yes she's just not fully formed uh-huh. and then she forms as you go and you just forgive that because you know mm-hmm. it was just she was just trying some things yeah, out exactly <laughs> yeah for sure so let's talk a little bit more about francesca and michael yes. what did you think of francesca uh <clears throat> i I liked Francesca. Like, I liked that we got to, you know, we've talked about in a different book where, you know, you get snippets of someone, but you don't get a lot of them. So you don't really understand who the character is when you read the book. It's not like, Mm -hmm. and I think we've talked about it, how, you know, we remember not always enjoy, we don't remember enjoying Hyacinth's book as much, but I think it's, but I think it's because we had so much Hyacinth in all the other books. And even in this book, we have plenty of Hyacinth. Plenty. But like (laughs) Francesca, we didn't have as much of, so we weren't. We couldn't be disappointed with Francesca. Does that make sense? Because we didn't know who Francesca was. True. I mean, I think we could have been disappointed if her character hadn't jumped off the page. But her character does jump off the page. And you from like I mean, you get that tragic story in the beginning, Mm -hmm. right? And you know who she is. Yes. But you also know that she has like a sly sense of humor and Mm -hmm. like you can feel it in her dialogue, but she's also super forthright. And she doesn't mm-hmm. beat around the bush. She's like, hey, we're going to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And even when she has, like, internal stuff, like, she just kind of takes herself away and she mulls over her, like, internal feelings and gets a better handle on it. And then she addresses it, which I love. Yes. I agree. Um, I really liked Francesca. She's a different character. I like that she has a lot of dimension. You know, she goes through a ton of trauma. Oh. And grief. 
And she, I like the way that she processes it, which is she tries to talk to people about mm-hmm. it, right? She tries to find outlets. Then she, you know, makes a life for herself and keeps going. And yeah, she's removed in Scotland, but that's what the distance that she needs to to heal. And, and I feel like it's right. The thing that I don't love so much uh, is just that she didn't write back to Michael, but I guess it just made the the four years apart, four years apart, you know? Yeah. And I think that, but I, I, I guess I kind of saw a little like similarity between like when Francesca went through the miscarriage and Michael found out like he was so devastated. He was devastated for her, but he's still devastated for John. And now there's like, now he really is the Earl. So now he's more of John. And he's like, mm-hmm. I know I need to go to her. Like, I'm her friend. I need to help her. But. I'll do that tomorrow. And I think that with the letters, because in the book, like Julia Quinn, at the beginning of each chapter, you kind of get like little snippets from letters and you see Mm -hmm. the ones that like Francesca started to respond to him, but she just just never finished it or never sent it because she just she just was still mad and she was still grieving. And she's like, but he didn't like four years, though. But isn't it so easy to like stop yourself once and stop yourself again and to be fair when he stopped writing it's not like he wrote her letters for four years he wrote her three letters mm-hmm. and then she didn't respond didn't he, to them no he wrote her three letters well didn't he didn't he write something in the last letter like i'll be here if you want to talk to me i thought that was yes part he of his- did but it's so easy when like you're just trying to move on like i mean how easy yeah. it is to just put something off and put something off and then the next thing you know it's like four years later you're like whoops my bad then- Fair. I actually want to. I, I want to talk about those those snippets that she put in front of the mm-hmm. the the thing because you know we have Lady Whistledown for the first four books. I meant to talk about this in our general thoughts, so pause <laughs> before we give our heroine rating. But for Lady, you know, the first four books we have Lady Whistledown, and it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's just so brilliant, mm-hmm. right? Like, and then we have Eloise's letters, and I I kind of liked them. Like, yeah. they were kind of interesting. I, I found them to be interesting. Mm-hmm. These ones I felt were so bad, so dumb, and entirely uh, superfluous. Mm-hmm. I I will say I hated them. I, if I had been the editor, I would have said, no, this. I understand what you're trying to do here. You're trying to make it so that all the books are the same. I get that. But these just aren't good when it's like scratched out for the third time and then thrown away in the fire with a look on his face of disgust. I mean, like, each one gets, like, to me, like, they don't match. They just didn't, Mm -hmm. they didn't match the book. And I, I know what she was trying to to say by by saying that. Like, we saw the snippets of the letters. So we saw what Francesca, like, tried to respond and didn't. Yeah. But I still thought, like, two sentences when Michael came back from from India could have accomplished that. Like two sentences of exposition, basically, of, of the characters thinking about what had happened between them and how they yeah. just had tried to write and didn't. And to me, it just felt unnecessary. They, it didn't add anything. That's so, fair. I don't know. And I, I responded extremely negatively to them. <laughs> I kind of responded indifferently to them. I usually like, to be fair, on a lo- I read them because some authors, like I know I don't need to read the little like snippets before each chapter but because like julia quinn usually does have something that pertains to that chapter like Mm -hmm. in those letters like in eloise's letters like each letter like even when it wasn't even when it was to her mother or something like that it was kind of a foreshadowing for what was going to happen in the next chapter versus this was more kind of like 
getting more of a history about when they were apart. But yeah, it, it had it, nothing it didn't, to do with the chapters. It didn't further the chapters along. They didn't refer back to the letters. It was just like yeah. they were there. One of my favorite fantasy authors in all of his books has sections like that in front of all the chapters. And they're pivotal pieces of information, but make no goddamn sense until the book is over. <laughs> and it drives me it drives me nuts because I'm like, I know I have to read this, but I, t- I don't know what it means. <laughs> I, that, I would be so bad about reading those because I'd just be like, I don't get it. And then by the time the end of the book happened, I'd be like, I don't remember where I learned this information. <laughs> right. And then in his really, really big books, he has like this, you know, giant series that he's doing now. And so each of the books are a thousand pages long. And he in the he'll have these little segments uh, between part one, part two and part three of the book where it's like three mini stories about characters that sometimes you never see again. Oh, God. And don't like they don't quite relate. But you you just know he's going to pull it back in somewhere and make it important and you're just like damn it i have to read this but i want to get back to my characters i would be very bad about reading those that's why fantasy is is harder for me now that i'm like into romance because it's like well but romance will tell me like i know it's you know i don't have to wait (laughs) oh yeah well and also with fantasy i will say honestly in fantasy books i would be the worst because i'd literally have to be like i have to go back (laughs) because there'd be like some pivotal information i'll be like wait we learned this somewhere along the line. I feel like this is important. Let me like flip back to the front of the book and get that chapter remembered, like refresh that chapter, then get to the end. Because the books are so long. It's not that it's been two days since I last read it. It's usually like been a week since I last read what was important. Anyway, yeah. we digress. We need to give Francesca a rating. <laughs> we, my goodness, we do. What would you rate, Francesca? I'm going to rate her... Like a 7.5. I concur. I think she's a 7.5. I really like her. She's fun. She's dynamic. Her decisions make sense. Um, she doesn't stall too much. She runs away once, but so did he. You yeah. know, well, she, <laughs> they, and they, they come to their senses pretty quickly. She acknowledges when she runs away. She's like, yes, I ran away. But, <laughs> like, I stand behind my running away decision. <laughs> Yes. And she's like, and uh, I don't care if it makes me cowardly. It was the decision I needed to make. And I just like her. Yeah. I just like no, her. No, I really I like know. her. She doesn't have that like, oh my God factor. Yeah. But that's fine. They can't all have that factor. Yeah. So what about Michael? Now, Michael, he's the rake. And he doesn't feel very rakish. But then again, we kind of learn about him like – when the tragedy changes his entire life. Mm-hmm. So he can't really be the rake anymore. But I do feel like you saw the change. Like I felt it was very interesting to see like in the first few pages that like internal struggle and then that like very careless kind of outward appearance that he was giving to others. Like I thought that was really interesting. Um, sometimes his guilt over the John thing got to me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, it was just too much, especially, like, when he came back and it's four years later and he's still, like, it's a betrayal. And then Colin says two things to him and he's like, maybe it's not. And I'm like, okay, well, I get you're in a better place to hear it now, but I was kind of getting over the whole guilt thing. I get that. So how does he rate for you? Um, Still going to rate him, like, a 7.5 because, again, he's, like, honest. He tells you what he feels like. I mean, he doesn't say the I love you part, but, like, 
he's a pretty honest person when it comes to his interactions. Like, mm-hmm. and I think he's a very forthright. I think he's a, I think he's a very caring individual. Like, I love the yeah. fact that he didn't like sever his friendship with John or because he loved Francesca. And I love the yes. fact that like he was so like he loved John so much. That even though he loved Francesca in it, like, the same way John did, his love for John, like, surpassed that. Because he's like, no, John is my best friend. He's my cousin. Like, I can't. My brother, basically. My brother. Yeah. I can't do that to him. Definitely. Yeah, I feel the same way about Michael, except maybe less about the the guilt thing. I felt like I understood that a little bit more. Maybe then, or I, I was more understanding than you were. I, I know you didn't hate it. I didn't. Yeah, just, no, there just yeah. is like there was a couple moments where it just like a passage or something went on a little too long, where I was like, and I get it. <laughs> yeah, but I just feel like he was so interesting. Like I loved that he, um, you know, was friends with them, and you know, f- kind of considered Francesca one of his good friends. Like mm-hmm. he was good friends with a woman, yeah. and he. He hid his stuff because he was like, I I mean, yes, he was a little bit like punishing himself on the inside, but he really like didn't punish himself outwardly. And that Mm -hmm. was so great. And I don't know. He's also, you know, a very, just a very kind gentleman. And he just knew that he loved Francesca. He knew this was the girl for him. And I don't know. I just really liked him too. I mean, I'm not making much sense. I don't like, I liked him. I'm his 7.5. Yeah. I mean, he's in that 7.5. Like he's not the, he was close to an eight for me. I really almost gave him an eight though. I mean, I'll tell he's, you that. yeah, I, I agree that that's fair, but I feel that way about both of them. Like they're both very close to eight territory. Yeah. But they're just, they're missing that like extra zing. Yes. But they're perfectly lovely characters, and I thoroughly enjoyed reading this book. Like, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes. Agree. So now, do you have a favorite quote from this book? I do. I liked a lot of quotes. Guys, I I put a lot of quotes into the synopsis, but the reality is is I had, like, twice as many, like, highlighted. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So this is when Michael goes to number five, and he sees Violet Bridgerton. And he's a flirt, and Violet's just like, you. (laughs) Because she's known, like I said, the thing about it is, and this is kind of something, like, I wish we'd had more of in the kind of, like, back history or just in the other books, is Michael's been a part of, like, Michael is known at the Bridgerton house. It's not like he and John and Francesca were best friends just at Kilmartin, you know, He's been to the Bridgerton family dinners. Like, he knows the Bridgertons. So he's, you know, joking with Violet and flirting with her. And then she's like, you know, you have to come to dinner. And he's like, I couldn't. She's like, I insist. So, quote, there was no way he was going to win the argument. So he just sighed and said, I don't know if I can kiss the hand of a Violet. It seems rather scandalously intimate, don't you think? Don't you dare stop. (laughs) Tongues will wag, he warned her. I believe my reputation can withstand it. Ah, but can mine. Oh, such a flirt. Like, just such a flirt. And Violet's just eating it up. She's like, you can keep going. Like, this is great. Yeah, (laughs) she's great. Uh, So my favorite is kind of weird favorite, but it's my favorite because it reminded me of something and made me laugh so much. Mm -hmm. 
So one of my favorite podcasters had this bit. um, This is the McElroy brothers from My Brother, My Brother, and Me in the Adventure Zone. And they had this bit in a live show where they talked about how the middle brother, Travis, uh, when he goes to new cities, he has different personas that he'll kind of put on and (laughs) joke about. And so like he's got like – Big Apple Travis. I think he might even say Snapple Travis or something. <laughs> he, he's got some weird things. And then he's also like, oh, in my city, Travis, you know, like when he gets to a city before his other brothers, then mm-hmm. he'll be like, oh, well, in my city, like, <laughs> like, he'll just pretend. So but they normally don't like the other brothers don't normally like his, uh, his bits, mm-hmm. uh, his city bits. But they really loved this one, which was for whatever reason, like they they ordered something. Uh, or they wanted to order something and then Travis would have to like say like, no, 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 we we can't, we can't. And then they'd, they'd all have to pretend like they didn't actually want to do something. And mm-hmm. then Travis would go, let's just be bad. <laughs> let's just be bad. <laughs> and he just, it was this whole, let's just be bad, Travis. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, again, telling someone else, telling how someone else was funny is never funny, but it is, it's so funny to me. They do such a good job and I love it so much. So there's a moment of that in this book when um, Michael is trying to get Francesca to go marry him that day. And <laughs> she's, you know, protesting and he's like, come on, let's do it. And then finally he, It says, quote, he knelt before her, his eyes aglow. Let's do it, Franny. Let's be mad, bad, and rash. (laughs) I'm just like, let's just be bad. (laughs) Anyhow, so it just, I love when books make you think of other things that you love. So anyhow, it it was my favorite. There was a lot of really good quotes. Like uh, like a ton of the serious ones were super good, but there was also some lighthearted and some funny ones. You know, there's a classic Bridgerton where... Francesca turns to her mom and says, because Hyacinth is in the room, and she's like, Mom, you really should have stopped at seven. And Violet's <laughs> like, Children? Yes, I think so. Sometimes I think so, too. And Hyacinth <laughs> is like, rude. That's <laughs> so cute. Oh, I love oh the man, family. and then there was another one with Hyacinth. Well, just say Sorry, it. <laughs> I'm going to say it. I just remembered it, and it's so good. I want to – I'm actually going to, like, find the direct quote because I need to do the direct quote. Anyway, so premise of this is Michael's coming over, and Hyacinth has met Michael, but she's never met him while she's out because he's been gone for four years. So Hyacinth's like, I've never met a rake before. And everyone's like, you've met Michael before. Like – So the quote is, yes, but that was ages ago, Hyacinth said with a dramatic sigh, before I understood what a rake was. You don't understand that now, Violet said sharply. Oh, but I, you do not, Violet repeated, understand what a rake is. Very well, (laughs) Hyacinth turned to her mother with a sickly sweet smile. I don't know what a rake is. I also don't know how to dress myself and wash my own teeth. (laughs) oh she's so sassy oh i i hope she's better than i remember her when i get her book oh and we talked about alphabetical order at the beginning of this and then i realized it's not full alphabetic order because hyacinth's book is before gregory's book it is what were we thinking what g does not come after h no not in most worlds okay so y'all don't have to tweet at us that now we 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 rectified that mistake Yes. Also, which is very right. exciting because we get to read Hyacinth's book next and revisit that. I know. I'm su- I'm super pumped. I really look forward to that. Okay. So. Side note. 
steaminess rating. Ah. And our encounter counter. So our encounter counter was a three plus plus. Yeah, it was. It was definitely a three, like three solid ones. And to be fair, our first encounter was like almost two encounters in one. Yeah. I think there was a next morning sort of thing. Yeah. Something like that. Mm -hmm. You definitely. uh, Okay, but this book was piping hot oh yeah it was it is like they just brought the kettle in and we all have to wait a while for it to cool down and it's like like when they got going they got going yes they did and also let's just talk about the difference this is this is for sure the steamiest Mm -hmm. bridgerton book oh definitely like for sure Mm -hmm. and if you look at even Eloise's book, but especially Penelope's book, which is just basically vanilla, yeah, like and very, very not steamy at mm. all. It's just so different. Like this almost feels like a different writer. It isn't. Like mm-hmm. it's still very Julia Quinn, but in some ways, it was so different of a style of the sex scenes mm-hmm. that I was kind of surprised. Yeah, by it oh, in a good definitely. way. I loved. I loved read. I loved this book, but like, I was just like. Wow, this is so different than the last two. I really thought, and this is something I thought about when I was reading it, was like the amount of like complacency in both people in the sense that like they both got into it. They both were enjoying it. Michael's like, I'm going to seduce her, but she has to tell me she wants it. You know, Mm -hmm. it was such like a, it was almost like a redo of like everything we didn't like about the first one. About Daphne's yes. book, it, this yes, is like it was. A, I thought that this too. is like a total opposite trend because they're both open and honest with each other, and all the scenes like there's no awkward missish scenes like Francesca's yeah. learning some things because you know Michael was a rake, he's been with lots of women, and she's like kind of like it, kind of dig it. (laughs) Yeah, of course. I mean, it is different because Daphne was a really uneducated virgin and Francesca's a widow. um, A widow who had a husband who, like, enjoyed bedroom sport with her. So, like, she did lots in the bedroom. The younger Bridgerton girls found more stuff out. They talked That's true. to Eloise, not maids. Eloise yeah. and Francesca Eloise looked was into like, that. Yeah, well, they looked into was that. Wasn't Francesca so. the one who had the idea to do it? I think so. Yeah. So, so anyhow, there it's definitely different. But I completely just agree. Like this was so different, and it felt also like a little bit of like a an an evolution of her as a writer, as far as like feminism mm-hmm. and and just consent and and all that stuff. And that leads us pretty well into our feminist recap, where I will say supporter. Oh, hundred percent supporter. Like. Michael loves the fact that she's strong. He is, like, very happy to let her take over Kill Barton. And he's like, Mm -hmm. you do whatever you need to do. And even when he comes back, he's like, I'm sure you have things to show me. Like, I'm not about to take this over without like Also, like, you can just keep doing it because, like, you do it so well. You'll do it better than me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't go, like, you know, I just think this is a very – positive book for women who read it and that's what to me makes it a supporter you know and also the consent stuff but i I just think uh it's a supporter and there's not much to say (laughs) other than that yes super support super positive and i really like i mean going back to our steaminess rating thing like i really liked it when francesca like got bold and she's like oh no we're gonna do this my way yeah and michael's like Yes, give it to me. Like, tell me what I need to do. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I, I really liked them together. They had so much chemistry, and that was so great. Mm-hmm. So one thing I realized we didn't talk about, and we were about to get to our final book reading, and we didn't talk about it, was Francesca's miscarriage mm-hmm. and her um, cycles and the second epilogue, which we've read, and it's been a long time. And I haven't read it in a long time. So I don't remember it exactly, but I, I did read a review. I, re- of- I read the second epilogue. Like you did because the books that I've been buying because I read all these books so long ago that I read them in like a physical book so I've been like rebuying mm-hmm. them in mm-hmm. um, Kindle books because ah, I, I and they come with the second epilogue. yes because I got the the when I read the Bridgertons we were getting the books from the library <laughs> so, That's so great it's been a while and um, so I did read the second epilogue because I have them and it's like. How far? How far in the in the future is it? It's a good, I think, four or five years in the future. Okay, so that's a lot of time. It's a lot so, of time. Spoiler alert, and we'll talk more about it when we do cover the second episode, second yes. epilogues. But Francesca does get pregnant and does have a baby. Yes, it's just it's a very and it's towards the end of the second. Honestly, like guys, I'm really excited to talk about this second epilogue because Violet is also killer in the second epilogue mm-hmm. and yeah. like and then you know kind of like francesca accepts like she's been fighting the fact that she can't have children and then she accepts like that's probably just her life and michael's fine mm-hmm. with that yeah like he's fine with it in this yes book. and she even says she's like honestly like i didn't i took so long for me to like get a child to have a to get pregnant with john and like we don't even know and then i had the miscarriage like i don't know if i'm even going to be able to have kids and he's like I love you and I love you more than I care about this earldom going to the cousins, you know, that the mom doesn't yeah. want it to go to. Yeah, which is so great. But what I wanted to point out is some people were like, oh, I didn't like the miracle baby thing. But I think it's totally – I still think – and although I haven't reread the the second epilogue, and we'll talk about this more, but I think it's totally possible because I was really reading this book mm-hmm. in mind of what she was talking about with her cycles and things. And, you know, there's really only a short period of time every month that you are – fertile, right? Mm-hmm. As a woman. And yeah. it sounded to me like Francesca didn't have normal periods is basically what she was saying. She They were never on time. Mm-hmm. They didn't come every month. And so she probably had something like PCOS or another sort of fertility disorder that makes contraception harder. Mm-hmm. And she could have had so many other things. And I think it's perfectly likely that at some point the, the things could have worked out in her favor. So mm-hmm. I I just didn't feel like I don't remember ever feeling like it was a miracle baby. I just remember feeling like oh, like she finally, you know, got what she wanted and that's wonderful, but she also was content with her life before that, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Um so I don't know. I think it'll be interesting. We'll definitely have lots to talk about when we when we read it and talk about it. Oh yes, we definitely will. I've been reading all the second epilogues and I've got like whew. I've been really enjoying them wait. actually. I remember reading it as like an anthology, and so I think it was a little over overwhelming, <laughs> like because it's just all these short little happy well, moments, and you're like, wait a minute, what's and this? That's, and I will say this too, like when I read it, it was same thing. I read them in when I first read them, it was just in you know the anthology, mm-hmm. and it'd been so long since I'd read the books all the way through that like yeah. I kind of was like vague remem- like memories of the book. So then when I did have these second epilogues, I was like, I got to read these right now because yeah. like now that the book is like in my brain, I want to reread these second epilogues. Nice. 
So yeah, so anyhow, I just wanted to mention that because you know, I, I had seen that and I didn't, I felt like it would be remiss if we didn't at least mention a little bit uh, of that line of thinking. Mm-hmm. So with that, let's move on to our final book rating. I'm going to give it an eight. Nice. Because I really like it. And I like, I like the characters. I like all the things. I like the this and the that. So like, I'm going to give it an eight. You know, I think I'm going to give it an eight, too. I'm having just kind of a meh day. And I'm like, am I? Because I was like going to give it a 7.5. But like, I'm just trying to think back to the day I read this and how happy it made me Mm -hmm. and like how surprised I was by it. And like, it's a great book. I really like it. I mean, I, I really, really like it. I'm surprised that I didn't remember it more strongly because it's a great book. I mean, I think I did, honestly. Like, it had an impression Mm -hmm. on me, obviously. But for some reason, I didn't remember it. So I think this book deserves an eight. Let's give it an eight. I I think it deserves an eight. I think it's a great book. Yay. Yes. So, so much fun. And then soon enough, we will get to read uh, Hyacinth's book. Yes, which is very exciting. I'm very excited to read that one again. What's the name of her book? Do you remember? Um, it's in his kiss, I think. It's in his kiss. Yes. yes. I could only think of I only know this because I was looking at the thing and, uh, I, I haven't reread that book, but I did reread like the blurb about it. Uh And I am excited because. Is he an older gentleman? No, he's not. He's Lady Danbury's like grandson grand nephew nephew maybe something nephew. like that you know what i forgot about that you're right yeah okay so he's okay, got well, the family but he's like a rake but he has the lady danbury tie and so lady uh, and lady danbury loves hyacinth she sure does she loves all the bridgertons let's be honest which was so another exciting moment in this thing with like she's like i can't believe your mother won't tell me how old she is francesca's <laughs> like are you gonna tell her how old you are absolutely not Oh, these women, they're so great. So I will give you guys all a little bit of a sneak peek. And I will say that we aren't going to be reading that until July, which I know is so far away. But the reason for that is that June is Pride Month. And so we're going to be reading LGBTQ books and also talking to some great authors doing great work in that space. Excellent. Sounds like a plan. But what are we reading next week, Zoe? Yeah, we're still in May. So next week, we are going to be reading A Beginner's Guide to Rakes by Susan Enoch. So cool. Something new. I've never read this author. Which is very exciting because I've read a lot of this author. I'm so excited to dive in. And we will be back next week to talk about A Beginner's Guide to Rakes by Susan Enoch. And may all your ever afters end happily. Tea and Strumpets is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Hi, and welcome. Damn it, my dog. (laughs) (laughs) Thea, shush. Okay. Thea. Oh, my God. Okay. She's still barking. Hi, and welcome to Tea. And with you want me to yeah sorry, sorry. however with and sorry <laughs> <laughs> sorry I like. Uh, <laughs>
Okay. Okay. Me? And you? A me? And you? All right. You go, and then I'll go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> she ran. She ran to her bedroom, and then I'm sorry. I just saw another message from my work. <laughs> Someone was making a joke because I think I said, don't stress about it now. And then someone, Skya Dawn, who's just so funny, was just like, I'm so stressed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sorry. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I was in the middle of a serious quote. (laughs) At least you made me laugh. There you go. Okay. Now I've got the giggles. Okay. Then go, he bit off. Now.